I hope you've been enjoying this series. We're kind of coming to, to the end of this series called Field Notes, Wisdom for Life from the book of Proverbs. And uh, I've really enjoyed it. I hope it's been a blessing to you. And uh, the way we've defined wisdom is like this. Wisdom is God-centered competence for the complexities of life. Some of these topics, we've said, you know, Proverbs... Uh, Tell me what wisdom is to the topic of parenting or marriage. Others of the topics, like friendship last week, we looked at and we said, this is a means to getting wisdom, that friendship is critical to having a wise life. This week, we're looking at the topic of work, work and labor. We're looking at tasks that have to be done every single day. We're looking at jobs that God's given to us to do. We're looking at our employment. In some cases, we're looking at being a stay-at-home mom, raising kids. Uh, Our work and our labor is the topic uh, that we want to address this morning. And and here's the thing. You know, our relationship's kind of weird because I'm a pastor. And so what I'm not supposed to do is look at my calling from God as like a career. You know, I'm not supposed to be a professional or a CEO or any, I'm supposed to really be spiritual about the way I approach. You know, I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to talk to Gabriel every morning. Can I get an amen? I'm supposed to speak in tongues every day. You know, I'm supposed to be super spiritual and not think in terms of employment or career. And yet the world also tells you that you're not to look at your career as a spiritual thing. That you're not to look at your work and your job as a calling from God. It's just a career. It's just a paycheck. Or it's just a task that you have to get done. I I want you to know this morning we are going to obliterate those categories. What we're going to do is we're going to absolutely sever the line between the ministry of pastors and and the work of a farmer, the ministry of a priest and the work of an engineer, the ministry of spiritual things with secular things. And what we are going to argue is that all work that God gives to us is spiritual work, is spiritual work. And so I'm actually starting to grow comfortable in my ability to speak to you about your work because your work is like mine. And my work is like yours. Now, here's my question for you. My question for you today is, what is your relationship to work? Today, what is your relationship to work? I thought about my own life. In my own life, there are some days when my work is like a communion table, where it is a place and a memorial of gratitude. My work is a place of fulfillment It's a place of provision. My work is an altar where God gives to me bread for my life, where God brings me the wine of fulfillment, where God has given me a place to express myself according to my gifts and my callings. Is your relationship to work like a communion table? You're like, man, I'm grateful for my work. It gives me a, a, a roof over my head. It gives me food on the, uh, on the table. It provides for my family. I definitely think of my work today as a place of gratitude. Or, if you're like me, some days my work is like a cross. It's a heavy burden. When I think about work, I think about suffering. I think about difficulty. I think about things that I don't want. I feel like when I'm thinking about work, I'm carrying a burden up a mighty hill. It's a cross I bear. It's a burden that I suffer with. 
Some days I can come to, to my work and I can come to my job and I can say, God, my Father in heaven, give me this day my daily bread. And some days I go to work and I say, God, if it be your will, may this cup pass from me. What's your relationship to work? What's your relationship? And it might depend upon the day. Like some days, man, I'm like, yeah, bread and wine. Other days I'm like, this is suffering, you know. Some days I'm like, woo, I'm getting to do exactly what I want to do. And other days, of course, this is not real because as a pastor, every day is perfect. Every day is a Friday. You know what I mean? But, but you get what I'm saying. Like some days it's like, man, I'm carrying this burden all the way up the hill. What's your relationship? What I realized and what I came to Proverbs to see is that what Proverbs does is it gives us an approach to work, a theology of work that will guide us no matter what kind of day we're having. Because I want you to know there's no right or wrong answer. There's nothing wrong with you saying, I am suffering with work. My relationship to work is I need a job. I need more money. I need, I need to pr provide more. And there's nothing wrong with really enjoying your work and enjoying success and enjoying the fact that you're well provided for and enjoying the fact that you get nice things from your work. There's nothing wrong with that. What is important, what is vital is that we have, dare I say it, we have a theology of work that can guide us on that hill so that if we're suffering, we will have hope. Or if we're walking in gratitude, we have a theology of work so that our gratitude will go to ever higher altitudes that we'll be more grateful to God for the good work he's given to us. You see, what the church cannot do and what the Bible is not going to do, the Bible is not a magic wand. We can't wave a magic wand and everything's going to be perfect. We can't wave a magic wand and like take away all of our problems. But what we can do is we can have the mind of Jesus Christ. We can have the mind of God as we approach work. So you ask, okay, all right, a theology of work. Where are we going to get a theology of work to guide us through the communion of work or the cross of work? Praise God, we have to go no further than the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is so powerful. In fact, I would say Proverbs is life-changing, life-altering in our perspective about work. Now, when I first came to Proverbs, I found two characters in the book of Proverbs, two really important characters that keep popping up in the book of Proverbs. One is the sluggard, or as some translations translate it, the slacker. When it comes to work, there's the sluggards, the slackers. The other character that we find in Proverbs is the smallest of characters in Proverbs. It's the ant. And what Proverbs does is it begins to contrast the approach to work between the sluggard and the ant. So let me read to you quickly a couple of passages, one dealing with the sluggard and the other dealing with the ant. I'll make some few, a few remarks and then we'll talk about what we need to talk about. But Proverbs 26 verses 13 and following talks about the sluggard. The slacker. Proverbs 26, verses 13 and following. It says this. The sluggard says, there is a lion in the road. There is a lion in the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. 
The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. All right, now let's talk about the ant. The ant is Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 and following, and here's what it says. Go to the ant, O sluggard. I love that. Hey, slacker, go to the ant. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Now consider the two characters, the sluggard and the ant. What Proverbs tells us about the sluggard is that the sluggard finds excuses not to work. In fact, the sluggard lives in excuses. There's a lion outside. There's always something wrong with the sluggard. There's always an excuse not to work with the sluggard, with the slacker. And I have to tell you, one of the things I've learned about Proverbs, I love this about Proverbs, it's been very challenging in my own life. I hope it's challenging to you. But one of the things that Proverbs keeps telling us, no matter what the topic is, let's stop making excuses. Can I get an amen? Let's stop making excuses. We're not victims. We're not somehow unable to do what God's called us to do. No doubt God's called us to do things that are far bigger than ourselves, but God is the one who equips us to do those things. There's no lion out there that's bigger than our God who's called us. There's no problem out there that God can't get us through. But the sluggard can't see that. The sluggard always has excuses. The sluggard always finds reasons not to do anything. And so the sluggard makes all of these excuses. And of course, I want you to see that the sluggard always says, I'm so wise. Look at how wise I am. I have figured out new ways not to work. I have made up all these creative, imaginative ways. In fact, a wise life, according to the sluggard, is not to do any work. And the person who can find a way to never work again is the wisest person in the world. He thinks he's so wise, and Proverbs says, in fact, indeed, he can't see it, but he's actually a fool. Only fools in this world might suggest that a life of wisdom is a life without Labor. That's a telling point. That's a telling point. But then we come to the ant. I love the ant. The ant's so little itty bitty, and I love little things because I'm kind of little. Cameron reminded me of this this morning. He's still asking me, does your mom still think you're taller? I'm like, yes, she does. I love little things. I love little people in the Bible. I love little people who do big things. And what I love about this little ant is that this little ant wakes up and needs no boss to get him out of bed. The ant needs no one to come and say, get out of bed and go to work. The ant takes initiative. The ant wakes up. The ant can't wait to work. When I'm speaking of my mom, when I was growing up, my mom, when I was a teenager, I don't know if you were like this, but I always wanted to sleep. And the way my mom got me out of bed is she grabbed my ear. She'd come and grab my ear and she'd pull me out of bed. Get out of bed, you short little shrimp. I was like, I thought I was tall, mom. You know, like, get out of bed. 
But the ant doesn't need that. The ant, in fact, wakes up and has an inner motivation, a passion, a desire. An ant sees worth in work and labor. An ant would never imagine that a life could possibly exist without work every single day. An ant is prepared. An ant never procrastinates. An ant is always working very difficult. And consequently, this little ant is able to face big giants. This little ant is able to live without fear. This little ant is able to come out of its little ant hole and face, face obstacles much bigger than herself. And she's able, despite that, to go and do great work. Come to this ant and learn wisdom, Proverbs says. Come to this ant and get a theology to work that will help you even if you are suffering through work or if you have work that you love. Come to this ant. Learn from this ant. And I ask myself, what is the spiritual anatomy of the ant? What is the inner motivation that requires that this ant needs no boss, needs no employer to force it to get out of bed and to go to work? What is the difference between the ant and the slugger in philosophy? And it is this, and this is the only point I want to share with you today. Only one point that I want to unpack to you today. And it is this, connect your work in the world to God's work in your life. Connect your work in the world to God's work in your life. Your workstation, your task, your to-do list, moms, your work that you go and do, you entrepreneurs, you farmers, you engineers, you policemen, your work station is God's workbench in your life. God uses work to shape us. God uses work to develop us. You're like, I didn't see that at all when you talked about the sluggard in the end. I didn't see that in the text. And I've got one more text to share with you, all right? And this is the theological secret to the ant. Look at Proverbs 13, 4. Only one verse. Only one verse. Proverbs 13, 4 says this. This is so awesome. I couldn't believe I found this verse. Out of all these Proverbs, I could not believe I found this. Proverbs 13, 4. It says, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Now, why is that different? Most Proverbs says if you, you, you want to eat, you want, you want food on the table, you got to get out of bed, you got to go get a job. You want to provide for your family, you got to go to work. But what makes this verse different is it says that the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. The soul. That there's something more going on in work than just food on the plate. That there's something more going on in work than just a roof over our head. That in fact, something is happening in the soul, in the spirit of the person who goes to work. 
The Hebrew word for soul is nefesh. And that word literally means appetite or stomach, but it was always used or mostly used in the Bible to refer as a metaphor, as a metaphor for spiritual satisfaction. Literally, the soul is fattened, says the Hebrew. The spirit is fattened by work and labor. Think about that. That is so radical of an idea that God has made work for human beings to be a source of spiritual soul nourishment. Our modern world has a one-dimensional perspective about the value of work. Our modern world will tell us the value of your work depends upon how much stuff your work can get for you. If your work is valuable, then it will put things in the garage. If your work is valuable, it will put things in your living room. If your work is valuable, it will put things in your backyard and your garage. If your work is valuable, it will give you things to ride and things to drive and things that you can show off. You can become enviable. And the more enviable you are, the more valuable is your work. In fact, our culture is like, you're really hitting on all cylinders. If you got storage space and you can afford storage space and then you can put more stuff in the storage space, stuff you're never going to use, then you're really hitting it on the value metrics, right? And you know what God says? God says the value of work has absolutely nothing to do with stuff. It has everything to do with our heart. You see, God wants us to connect our work to his work in our life. God wants us to see our workstation as a workbench that he's using to develop and shape our very lives. This was as radical in the ancient world as it is in our modern world. In the ancient world, all the ancient mythologies talked about the gods. And the gods never did any work. In fact, the gods valued a life of leisure the gods valued a life of doing no work, and it was only the slaves and, the, and, the, and the, the, the servants of the gods who had to go and get their hands dirty and build things for them. All the physical world was bad. In fact, earth was the body of a dead god who had died in the world. The ancient mythology looked at work and devalued work to such an extent to where if you were a laborer, you were valueless. You were useless. And here we find something different in the Bible, that God looks at work, all work, no matter what kind of work, as valuable. That work is something God gives to us as a gift and as a source for our benefit. You're like, all right, I like that principle. So my challenge to you this week, my challenge to you for the next month of your work is to start connecting your work to God's work in your life. That's my challenge. And you ask, okay, that sounds good. In light of that principle, what are some examples of how I can do that? Like, what does that mean? That's great theology. Work is spiritual. Work benefits our soul. Work comes into our life and blesses us, but how do I connect my work in the world with God's work in my life? And let me give you just a few suggestions as you walk in this challenge this next week, all right? The first way to connect your work in the world to God's work in your life is to look up to God as the ultimate worker. Look up to God as the ultimate worker. I want to suggest to you a revolutionary idea. God is the ultimate laborer. 
God loves labor. God loves work. God is a worker. Can I get an amen? And hallelujah. God has nothing to do with that sluggard who just kind of sits around in heaven and just kind of lays there and says, oh, yeah, I am so wise because I don't do any work. Our God, our mighty God, our awesome God is a laborer. There is a reason why Genesis 1 and 2 presents God as a gardener and as a ditch digger. There's a reason why the presentation of all of creation revolves around the paradigm of a work week. On the first day, God spoke light and light came into darkness. All the way to one, two, three, four, five, six. And then when he created Adam, you know what God did? Which was so revolutionary in the ancient world. It presents God as actually using his stands and getting down in the dirt and shaping man out of the dust. He touched something that for the gods was dirty. And he breathed into man life and spirit. And he said to Adam, you are created in the image of me. And therefore, because you are to reflect my glory, I'm going to give you work to do because I go to work. Who is the most relevant person to talk to when you're laboring? Who's the most relevant person to talk to when you're carrying the burden of your work? God. God is. God is presented in Genesis as a, as, as a gardener. As a ditch digger, God gave Adam work before sin. You know, I think I used to grow up and go, man, I wish Adam and Eve wouldn't have sinned because then if they wouldn't have sinned, then we would never have to go to work. and We would never have to labor. We'd never have to do anything that would be strenuous. And you know what? Work existed before sin came into the world. Work is not a curse. It says that the judgment of original sin is not work, but the sweat of the brow. The judgment, the punishment of original sin is that we get tired, and that's a bummer because we don't want to get tired in our work. We want to go to work. God has put into us this desire to go to work, look up to God, look up to God. Not only is God presented in Genesis as a gardener, as a ditch digger, but Jesus is presented in the gospel as a carpenter. Everybody say carpenter. Say it louder. Say it even louder. Jesus was a carpenter. Now here is the eternal son of God, the eternal son of man, fulfilling the ultimate prophecies for the redemption of all of mankind. The Old Testament said about the Messiah that he would be king of kings and lord of lords. The Old Testament said he would be the most glorious anointed person ever. That when Jesus would come, he would dominate. He would take all leaders out. That he would come. And that's why we expected that when the Messiah would come, he would not come in a stable. And his bassinet would not be a feeding trough and that his original home would not be a small town. We expected him to be born in a palace, but he wasn't, was he? He was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth, and guess what he did? He was a carpenter. He got his hands dirty on wood. He moved stone. He had to flex his muscles. Can I get an amen? Jesus was a worker. He was a carpenter, and that is not on accident in terms of our theology of work. I'll never forget when I went, I went to Israel... And one of my favorite places that I went, I just loved this place. It was within walking distance of Nazareth, a little town called Sepphoris. And this little town, in, within walking distance of Nazareth, was built by Herod. And he built, a, he built this amphitheater. He built municipal buildings. It was this great, like, small little city that was remarkable, and it was forever old. 
And what the archaeologists decided, what they determined based upon their dating processes is that this city was built by Herod when Jesus would have been in his 20s. And so they postulate that probably Jesus and if Joseph, his father, was still alive, if they were still alive, they would have helped build this city of Sepphoris because what Herod did is he always contracted out the local laborers to do his work. That meant I was walking around stone. I was walking around amphitheaters. I was looking at buildings that Jesus got his hands dirty on. And guess what? His boss was Herod. Now, that's a toxic working environment. Can I get an amen? That's a little dysfunctional as a boss. But there Jesus is. He was learning how to bear his cross. He was learning the value as a human being, the value of work. And isn't it interesting that we Americans do everything we can to get away from work when actually work is the most closest thing to how God operates than anything else that we do. Martin Luther, 500 years ago, at the end of October, we'll be celebrating the Reformation. 500 years since the Reformation, since Martin Luther made his protest against the Catholic Church. And when he made his protest that salvation does not come through the sacraments, but that salvation comes by faith alone and Jesus alone, he began to draw the implications of that out for the farmers that he pastored, for all the families that he was responsible for pastoring. And what he discovered is, is that the Catholic Church had been lying to people for years and years. They made this radical severance between spiritual duty and secular duty. That the priest and the bishop and the pope were more important than the farmers and the artisans. And what Luther did in his catechisms and in his pastoral teaching ministries, he says, don't you see that what the gospel does is it makes all of our work spiritual. That God is a worker and that he has made us workers. And that, in fact, it's a critical component to how God helps us to develop in our humanity and in our life as followers. In fact, I got a quote from a, a book he wrote. He wrote a book called To the Christian Nobility of the German Nation. And listen to what he says. I love this. He says, quote, It is pure invention that pope, bishops, priests, and monks are called the spiritual estate, while princes, lords, Owners and farmers are called the temporal state. This is indeed a piece of deceit and hypocrisy. Let no one be intimidated by it, and that for this reason. All Christians are truly of the spiritual estate, and there is no difference among them except that of office. We are all consecrated as priests. What he was saying is there's no spiritual difference between a farmer and a pastor. That they are equally spiritually beneficial to God and that they are equally doing spiritual work. The only difference is that of office. He said, God, this is what he said to his church. He said, God milks the cows through the milkmaids. Isn't that great? What we have to do is look up to God and we have to say to God, God, you are the ultimate worker. And as I'm being provided for, help me to look to you as the worker to continue to help and provide. As I suffer in my work, help me to look to you so that I can have hope. Can I look to you in work? Look up to God. 
Connect your work in the world with God's work in your life. Here's another way. Here's another way you can connect it. Not only look up, but look in. Look in while you're working. What is God saying to you as you go through the pain? What's God telling you about yourself when you're carrying that burden of work? What's he saying? Are you listening? Because God is showing you things about yourself. Or what is God showing you about yourself when you have enough bread and enough wine? What is he revealing to you? What I noticed about the sluggard, did you notice what the sluggard said? The sluggard said, oh, I'm so wise. I'm so wise. I've figured out a way to sleep in all day. I've figured out a way to absolutely avoid all forms of work. I'm so wise. His friends would come over. And, of course, they had to come over late in the afternoons because that's only when he's awake. You know what I mean? And they'd come over, and they'd be sitting around with the sluggard, and they'd be like, what have you been doing all day? I'm so wise. I haven't been doing anything. I'm wiser than you. you got to go to work. I don't have to go to work. I'm so wise. And you know what Proverbs says is that he can't see. He can't see. He has no self-awareness that he's not wise. He's a fool. You know what work does? It forces us to know ourselves better. If we Listen, if all I did was watch Netflix all day long and read books, I could learn absolutely nothing about myself. The whole reason God sends humanity out to work is so that hopefully somehow we will become more aware of ourselves. And you know what we learn when we go to work? We learn that we have more potential than we thought we had. When we were kids and we got that lawn business, we started mowing lawns. We go, I can do more lawns than I thought I could do. We learn about ourselves. We learn that we have this great potential. We learn about our gifts. We learn about our strengths. We learn about the things that make us passionate. We learn about what we can bring to the team. We learn about our potential. But not only do we learn about our potential, we also learn about our limitations. Can I get an amen? You learn about your, your limitations. You start going, man, I don't know everything. I can't do everything. I need other people in my life to help me to get a job done. I need people. I am limited. I have great potential in this area, but I have great limitations in this area. And as we go to work and as we look in, we begin to discover our weaknesses and our strengths, and that is by divine design. I remember a job, my, one of my favorite jobs I ever had was I worked at Chick-fil-A when I, went to, when I went to seminary. I was at seminary, and I had to get a job because I had two daughters at that time. I had Sherry Baby, and we were letting, you know, and I had to go get a job while I did seminary. So there I was. I was trying to learn Hebrew and Greek, and I was going and pushing chicken. Can I get an amen? I'm very proud of that fact. I still have my Chick-fil-A badge with Josh on there. I still got a cow tie, which I'll wear for you sometime. I've got a Chick-fil-A watch. I love Chick-fil-A. And here's the thing about the Chick-fil-A I worked at. It was in a food court at a mall. And so one of the things that we had to do at Chick-fil-A is we had to draw attention to the mall people so that they would come to Chick-fil-A and not the Chinese food restaurant or, or the pizza place or the McDonald's or the Taco Bell. And so what we had is a gigantic cow outfit. Can I get a hallelujah? Big old cow outfit. And so we took turns on cow duty. 
And so some days I had cow duty, and I remember saying to Sherry Baby on my way to work, I was like, Sherry Baby, she's like, you're going to where I'm going to work. And I said, it's going to, it's going to be a tough day because I got cow duty today. And she goes, oh, no, you got cow duty. I got, I got cow duty. And so I would go, and I did not look forward to Cal Duty because I was doing important work. I was a theological student. Can I get an amen? I was learning Hebrew. I don't want to be a cow. But there I went. I went to work. I went to work. And I had to look in. And I had to connect this work of being a cow to God's work in my life. I had to do this. So I got in this big old cow outfit. Now, the first benefit of being a cow was, Cameron, I was much taller. I was much taller. It was a very tall because the eyes were like in the belly and the head was up here. And so I go out, I get in that cow outfit, and I go out into that food court, and I dance, and I, you know, do all this stuff, and you're sweating. And here's what I discovered. I was a pretty good cow. <laughs> like, I was like, I think I'm still like the most anointed Chick-fil-A spotted cow in the history of Chick-fil-A. They don't even know it. And I would get out of the outfit, and my, my boss would say to me, you're good at that. You're a good cow. And I went home. I said to Sherry, it turns out I'm an awesome cow. And she was like, I knew you would be a great cow. You know what I mean? Like, this is great. And I learned something about myself. I'm a motivator. I'm exciting. I'm passionate. I was a cow like I preach. You're like, how'd you learn how to walk all over the place up there? Because I was the cow at Chick-fil-A. And it attracted people. And when you walk around all over the place, they'll come and get chicken from you. And so I'm hoping by walking all over the place, you'll come and get the word from me. You see, I learned something about myself. But I also learned at Chick-fil-A that I hate. Everybody say hate. I hate administration. Oh, I hate it. And one of the duties I had to do is I was a team leader, and I would close on many of the nights. I have to count the money and do all this paperwork, and then through a computer program, send the money figures of the day to the headquarters of Chick-fil-A in the glorious Atlanta. And I'd have to send this in the middle of the night, and it always took me so long because I always messed up the paperwork, and, and I learned something about my limitations. You know what I learned? I'm the motivator. I'm the one that gets people fired up, but I need somebody to do the paperwork. Can I get an amen? You see, when we begin to connect our work in the world to God's work in our life, and we begin to look in and say, what are you teaching me about myself at work? How are you shaping me at work? You begin to learn about future things that God's going to give you to do that you have no idea about yet. If you can begin to see God at work in your life, in your work, if your work is God's workbench, he will prepare you for a future that you don't even know about yet. But you've got to listen now. You've got to listen when you're the, when you're the cow. You've got to listen when you're doing administration you don't want to do. You got to be learning about yourself when you're picking up all those suffering, when you're working in that, in that toxic environment. It's not just about all the bosses that are bad or the, or the work culture that's bad. It's about what is God teaching you about you in that? Because he's teaching you about your potential and your limitations. Listen, connect your work in the world to God's work in your life, and you will find wisdom you never knew you had. Here's the final thing. Let me give you one more way, and then I'll be done. The final way to connect your work in the world to God's work in your life is look out to others. You know what I love about God's plan? And, of course, God is wise. But he, he manifests his wisdom in this. I'm going to make human beings work 
Because when you go to work, even if you are the most selfish person in the world, you have to think about others. Have you ever noticed that? You have to. If you're going to succeed at work, you have to think about other people. You can't think about yourself all day long if you're going to go do a good job. You have to think about others. God is shaping in us the ability, and the most selfish person will have to go to work and give them a burger or fries or please a boss that they don't like or follow some rule that they don't want to follow or actually show up on time when usually they don't have to show up on time. I mean, you have to think about somebody other than yourself when you go to work, and that's by design. Now, selfish, unspiritual people, when you haven't been born again, you can't see that, but if you could practice the discipline of seeing that, like wow, I have to think about other people today, then it will begin to help you and shape you to love your neighbor as yourself. C.S. Lewis said this. C.S. Lewis said, we have to stop being selfish. And he said that selfishness is not thinking less of ourselves, or selflessness is not thinking less of ourselves. Selflessness is thinking less about ourselves and more about others. And work shapes that in our life. Work makes us think about other people. And if you're going to connect God's work in your life and connect your work in this world with God's work in your life, then think out, think to others. Think about how God is shaping you as an other-oriented person. And if we never had to go to work, God forbid, if we won that lottery... If we won that lottery and we had all the millions of dollars that we could possibly have and we could just sit on a beach all day and drink a pina colada, you know what would happen? We would become so absorbed with ourselves that we wouldn't learn the value of serving other people. Jesus said it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. That's why even, even when we have an abundance, we still go to work. That's why even when we have a retirement plan, we have to find work to do. We've got to find a task. We've got to find somebody to follow, a team to work with, benefits to add to people's lives because there's value in work. And all work is spiritual. Connect your work in this world with God's work in your life. You're like, yeah, but man, that's... It's pretty surface principle, Josh. I mean, I still, I got this burden. I got this suffering. Or I, I still get worried. I, I get scared at night. It's so good right now. I don't want to lose it. And I get, I get scared that I might lose a good thing. I'm, I get scared that maybe the economy is going to take this away from me. And then I've, I'll have to go through the terror of carrying the cross. I, I, it's not as simple as just connecting my work in this world with the work of God in my life. I need something more. And the real secret to this is remembering this. In order to do this well, you need to have soul rest. That the critical power and resource to be like that ant 
in a way that's healthy and beneficial is to get rest in Jesus Christ. Because here's what we're saying. We're saying that work adds meaning to life, but work can't be the meaning of life. And there are some people who have no problem with laziness, but they're workaholics. They, are, they worship work. Work is an idol that provides for them their salvation and their identity and their whole major transcendent purpose. And what we have to do is be able to work six days and rest on the seventh. We gotta be able to go to work with our identity not identified with our work, but identified with Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus said. I, I found this this week when I was reading Scripture. Jesus healed the lame man on a Sabbath. And man, that really upset. You know, the Pharisees were all, you're, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to heal people on the Sabbath. That's not traditional. God said to rest on the Sabbath, and here you are doing ministry on the Sabbath, you sinner. And here's what Jesus said in John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. He said, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. You're like, why is that significant? The reason why that's significant is because Genesis tells us that God rested on the seventh day from his work and that that rest was an eternal rest, a permanent rest, that his work was complete. There was nothing more to add to creation. God had completed creation. He wasn't going to add new worlds or new universes or anything like that. That work of creation was done, and it says God rested on the Sabbath, meaning creation was done. And so when Jesus says, I am working and the Father is working, what he is suggesting is that he came to bring a new creation, that he came to do a new creation, and not out there, but in here, to give us new life. And the work that the Father was doing, and the work that the Son was doing, is that ultimately, he would do the work of carrying the cross. And Jesus said, come to me, and I will give you rest. Bring your sin, bring your brokenness, bring your selfishness. Don't worry about fixing yourself. Get to the foot of the cross so that you can handle crosses in life. Get to the, get to the table of bread and wine, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, so that you can more fully enjoy your table that has dinner, your home that has a roof. Get to Jesus and get rest. Because the Bible says until you enter that eternal, spiritual, Sabbath rest, then one way or the other, your relationship with work will go funky. It just will. Because either you won't work hard enough, or you'll, you'll so overwork, you'll, you'll so go, you won't ever take a Sabbath, you'll never rest, you'll constantly go to work and worship at the altar of work like so many people in our culture do. The only way to get work and rest right is if we get rest in the one who went to work for us, who identifies us with freedom and forgiveness. Do you know Jesus Christ? Have you believed in him? Have you accepted the fact that he was willing to get in that ditch for you? He was willing to enter your darkness. He was willing to enter your cave. He was willing to enter your toxic work environment and your toxic heart and to love you in such a way to where he could set you free and you could become a new creation. We have to have Jesus. We have to have rest in him in order to work well. Connect your work in the world with God's work in you. Now think about it. This is my final thing. Think about this. We Americans, you are in the country 
in the world that works more than any other country in the civilized world. Did you know that? We work more hours than anybody else. I saw a chart. I saw statistics. I pulled up an article, and I found out Americans outwork everybody. In fact, a full-time American employee averages 47 hours of work a week, and that's quite a bit in the world. That averages out, if you average it out, that's about eight hours a day. That's a six-day six work week, basically. That's a six-day work week right there. 47 hours. What this means, beloved, is that we Americans spend more time at work than anywhere else. There are more days, more months, more years that we will spend at our workplace, our workstation, our everywhere. Most of our life is spent at work and with people that we work with. Certainly our waking hours. Now imagine if we could see that God speaks to us in our workplace. Imagine if you could listen more to God in your workplace. Imagine if you could see your workplace as a place of worship, your worship station as a worship station. Imagine how that might change you. You see, we look for spiritual change in the spectacular spiritual. I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to get the Holy Spirit, and God's going to do all this big stuff in my life at church. And do you know what? God's going to do most of the big stuff in your life at work. Proverbs says that wisdom cries out in the marketplace, on the corners, that wisdom cries out in the farm fields, that wisdom cries out exactly where we're at. And wisdom says, God is speaking to you now on your Monday, on your Tuesday, on your, on your Wednesday. And if you could hear him in those places, think about the difference you could make in other people's lives. Think about the light you could be. Think about the difference you could be in a toxic environment because you're looking out and not in. You're carrying your cross saying, God, help me get through this toxic work environment. That will change people's lives. Think about when you go to work and you're like, man, this is how God's providing for me. And other people hear you giving thanks to God because this is how he gives you your bread. This is how he gives you your wine. You could change the world and your life could be changed significantly if you could learn this one principle. Connect your work in the world with God's work in your life. Let's pray.